Well, this morning we'll make our way through these opening 25 verses of Luke's Gospel. And Luke is kind of preparing the ground for us as we are introduced to those events that took place immediately before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ into this world. And in these opening verses, all of the focus lies on a priest by the name of Zacharias. And we're going to see in him one who is faithful, one who is fearful, and one who is faltering. But we're going to learn some really helpful and important lessons as we make our way through. Now in the opening four verses, uh, Luke wants to emphasise for us the reliability of this account that he gives. Luke was not one of the twelve disciples, but he was very closely associated with them. Uh, Later on, he will become a very close friend and at times a travelling companion with the Apostle Paul. And so he had... Uh, very easy access amongst everybody in the early church and he was a doctor by profession and he tells us that he has meticulously researched and then laid out in an orderly fashion all of the things that those early believers believed in concerning the Lord Jesus Christ With forensic attention to detail, he's considered eyewitness accounts. Those accounts have been noted down. They've all been cross-referenced. He's checked everything. Hercule Poirot would have been proud of him. Nothing's been left untouched. No stone has been left unturned as he's gone into it all. These are the things... We most surely believe, says Luke. You get the impression that at the end of his endeavours, he's even more convinced of what he believes and why he believes it, not less. And his goal in writing is that his friend Theophilus, along with everybody else, might be equally convinced. That's one good reason for us to consider Uh, these verses that Luke has for us, that we might be convinced of what he's about to say regarding the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important for you to be convinced about. And that's why we're using this section of God's word over these next few weeks as Christmas approaches. And this attention to detail that Luke Luke has It can all be seen even in how this priest, Zacharias, is introduced to us. There's some very precise information given so that no one can be mistaken about who he's talking about and when these things took place. It's important to remember anyone who was reading this account when it was first produced they'd have been able to go into Jerusalem and check out all of these facts for themselves. All the people were still there. All the records were still there. 
Luke places this event in history for us. It's at the time when Herod the Great is king. Herod was the king in Judea between the years 37 and 4 BC, so just before Christ was born. And Zacharias is this priest. We don't know an awful lot about him, but we do know that he's married to this lady, and she actually is a descendant of the most priestly line, Aaron. Elizabeth is a direct descendant of the brother of Moses. That's quite a family tree. In Jewish society, they would have been very impressive credentials indeed to be able to trace your family back to Aaron. At the same time, to the casual observer, perhaps there's nothing notable about Zacharias particularly. He's just a certain priest. It's been, a, been estimated that at this point in Israel's history, there may well have been as many as 18,000 priests serving across the land in towns, in synagogues, as well as in Jerusalem. But this certain priest and his wife Elizabeth, you'll see, are notable for something. They're notable for their spirituality. They're notable for their godliness. They're described as being righteous. Before, righteous before God, verse 6, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Now, what is Luke suggesting here as he writes about this couple? Well, he's not suggesting that they had no sin. What it does point to, this language that he uses of them in verse 6, is two things in particular. First of all, they had a very real and active faith in God. Abraham, we are told in the New Testament, was first and foremost a man of faith. And it was his faith that was accounted to him as righteousness. And so when we read that they were both righteous before God, we can say with certainty that this, were, this was a couple who had a very real, living, active faith in God. And as far as anyone could ever tell, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless, as far as anyone could ever tell, they both lived as upright a life before God as you could hope for anyone to live. They live sanctified lives. They had a good testimony concerning everything that they believed. They were faithful to God, they were obedient to his word, and there were no apparent contradictions or hypocrisies in them that anyone could ever see. Just to be able to say that is a real sign of God's grace upon them. Could people say that of you? Is that your testimony? Do people see in you one who is faithful, obedient to the word, a life without contradiction and without hypocrisy? 
That's the mark of God's grace on the life of a believer. And such was Zacharias and Elizabeth. And that's far more significant than any family pedigree that they may have. Might have impressed their Jewish friends, but the spiritual heart of this man and woman was much more what God was pleased with about this couple and what he was interested in to see. God doesn't look for all the kinds of qualities and qualifications that the world might look for or be impressed by. God's not often impressed by the things that impress sinful men and women. Clean hands and a pure heart. That's what God's looking for. Faith and obedience. And yet, even as Christians, we can sometimes be quick to forget that. And we're told that this faithful and elderly couple had one great sadness which they shared. They had no children. And now, in their old age, they would never have any hope of having a child. Well, these 18,000, roughly, priests, they were divided into 24 divisions. They were all across the land, living in towns, serving in synagogues. And then for two weeks each year, on a kind of a rotor system, they would come into Jerusalem to serve in the temple. And one of the functions that the priests had was every morning and every evening inside the court of priests. So there was like concentric courtyards in the temple. First of all, where anyone and everyone could go. Then where only the Jews could go. Then where only the Jewish men could go. Then where only the priests could go. And then right at the heart of it, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would go just once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so... While they were serving in the temple, inside this court of the priests, where only the priests would go, there was an altar of sacrifice, and there was a large bowl, and into that bowl, coals from the altar would be placed, and incense sprinkled on top of the hot coals as an offering to God. And outside, the people are all praying, and the priests would take it in turns to carry out that function on a daily basis, morning and evening it was considered to be a great honor for a priest to be able to do that one of the greatest services that they could render to God on behalf of all the people in the temple at Jerusalem their names were drawn by lot and each priest could do this once in his lifetime it was a big deal in the eyes of many today God has chosen Zacharias. We've been thinking about the theme of providence on Sunday evenings. Well, on this particular day, it was Zacharias' turn on his rota to serve in the temple in Jerusalem. But not only that, in the drawing of lots, where many would say it is literally the luck of the draw. But more is taking place here. God, you see, has a remarkable purpose for this childless couple. And at just the right time, as it's the turn of Zacharias to serve in the temple, and of all the lots to be drawn, it's his lot that's drawn. God in heaven 
has his angel waiting and he's about to send him into the temple. And so Zacharias goes in and he prepares to fulfill this duty that's upon him, placing the incense upon the hot coals, all the people praying outside. He's God's man, in God's place, in God's time, and the angel arrives. And then the countenance of Zacharias changes from verse 11 as this angel appears in front of him. There's only, only Zacharias there. Everyone else is outside. It's just Zacharias and the angel. Well, in, in the sense of God bringing revelation to his people through the mouths of his prophets, there's been 400 years of silence in Israel at this point. God's not spoken. His voice hasn't been heard through a prophet since the time of Malachi. The last recorded miracles of note, well, you go back to the likes of Daniel in the lion's den and his three friends in the fiery furnace back in Babylon before the people came back to Jerusalem, which we've been thinking about in Ezra. That was more than 500 years ago. It's been said that this period of 400 years, roughly, between the Old and New Testaments, it was like night in Israel. And in Luke chapter 1, Luke is recording the last few hours of the darkness before the dawn is about to break. We read in Malachi, at the end of the Old Testament, in chapter 4, to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And he's about to. This seemingly endless night, spiritual darkness in Israel is drawing to a close. And the dawn is about to break. And we see that at the time of Gabriel's appearing, Zacharias is just about his duties it's this humble, faithful man who God chooses to use. And don't imagine that that's not an important little note in the story. The Bible teaches us regularly that it's, it's those who prove themselves faithful in small things that God chooses to use and bless to do greater things. Here's Zacharias. He's, he's a man who's been faithful in small things but he's being faithful and God chooses to use him. And Gabriel appears before Zacharias and he's filled with fear. Shouldn't surprise us. Have you ever seen anyone in a situation where their reaction is going to be predictable? We've had quite a lot of situations like that in our house over the years. I'll give you one. She won't mind me saying. Most summers at the bottom of our garden, we get mice under the shed. And if Debbie was ever out in the garden and one of those mice came out from under the shed, her reaction would be predictable. 
there are certain situations you just know how people are going to respond, don't you? Well, when we see Zacharias respond with fear, it shouldn't come as a surprise. Because for all the good that has been said about Zacharias, this man nevertheless still is a sinner. And he comes face to face with sinlessness. If ever of you came face to face with that which is without sin, you would be terrified. Because the state of your own sinfulness would be unmistakable. And sheer terror falls upon him. Sheer terror falls upon men, men and women whenever they come face to face with holiness. And so the angel's opening words are familiar. You find them throughout the Bible whenever God's messengers appears. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because actually a sinner has every reason to be afraid before God. But don't be afraid. Because the angel comes from a God who is kind and merciful and compassionate and good. And has a message of good news for sinful men and women. Don't be afraid, Zacharias. As sinners, we have good reason to be afraid of God, but he comes to us with good news. Good news of great joy. And his desire is that we would be at peace with him and know that peace that only he can bring. That's what Christmas is all about. That's going to be the message that the angels will repeat to the shepherds in the field. As all the focus falls upon Christ coming into the world. Well, God has something wonderfully good in store for Zacharias and Elizabeth. And it's going to set in motion God's purpose in bringing something even better into the world. I wonder how many times they prayed for a child. How many tears has Elizabeth shed? I wonder what that verse in the Psalms meant to her in Psalm 56. All her tears in God's bottle, written in his book. Not a single one of them has been missed by God. He's known every single one of them. Well, not only does Elizabeth have a lifelong medical problem that's prevented her from having children, but she's too old now anyway. Double the problem for God to overcome. And you see, sometimes it's when the situation seems impossible. Sometimes it's when God surely has left it too late. Then it is that God moves to answer prayer. Just when you thought, now is the time to give up. Just when you thought, now is the time to stop praying. Then it is that God answers prayer. We need to note that lesson well and never cease in prayer. And this glorious message that comes from Gabriel is that they're to have a son. And they must call him John. He will, of course, be John the Baptist. And what rejoicing there must have been in their home and amongst their friends. What even greater joy there will be 
at the preaching of this man, this rough and ready figure, this remarkable man who will storm out of the deserts of Judea with this amazing message of repentance. And this man, John, he will preach. And this man, John, will have the privilege of introducing the Saviour to the whole world and then just retreating into the background because now you have what you've been waiting for, truly. He's referenced there to uh, be someone who's going to abstain from alcohol. That's just a sign that he is to be especially consecrated to God. You read in the Old Testament that those who are kings are, are not to ever be under the influence of alcohol. Those who are in very special positions of authority and responsibility. This is just a mark of the, the special place that this man has in the purposes of God. That particular detail that's told us about him. This is a man in John who's to be especially consecrated to God because of the, the role and function that God is going to give to him. A fact borne out by the mention of this remarkable indwelling of God's spirit that this man is going to know. From the moment of his birth, from his mother's womb, God's spirit is going to be upon this man in the most remarkable way. In a way that he's going to need it. This John is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to, although we read about him in the New Testament, he is very much the, the last of the Old Testament prophets as the Old Covenant is about to give away to the New. This John will be the voice in the wilderness of Isaiah chapter 40 crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. His will be a new voice in Israel. His will be God's voice in Israel. And he'll call every man and woman to repentance. God's about to do a most remarkable thing. God is about to change the whole course of human history. In just a few months time. But then the section that we're looking at this morning concludes, thirdly, with a faltering Zacharias. From verse 18, after all that's been said about him by the angel, how can I know this? I'm an old man. So is my wife. Come on, be reasonable, Zacharias is saying. And perhaps it seems strange that Zacharias should struggle to believe what he's being told. You might imagine that being confronted by an angel would automatically and immediately only strengthen his faith. Now you can meet Christians today who will seek such signs because they believe that the manifestation of the miraculous will automatically convince and strengthen people. But you don't find any proof of that in the Bible at all, actually. Yet again and again in the Bible, we see that just doesn't just isn't the case. That often just doesn't happen. There's a similar situation with Abraham and Sarah when they're told that they're going to have a child. 
don't be ridiculous. That's impossible. We're far too old. And Sarah just laughed at the notion. And Gideon, he put that fleece out twice on the ground to have it wet when the ground was dry and dry when the ground was wet because God can't have got this right. And the faith of Zacharias falters a little at this point. Even though it's the very thing that he and Elizabeth have been desperate for. Even though it's the very thing that he and Elizabeth have been praying for. Don't be too quick to criticise him. Imagining that you'd be faring so much better if you were in his shoes that day. I think we'd all be like Zacharias. Gabriel's response probably is not that surprising, but Zacharias, I'm Gabriel. This is God's, well, how could we call Gabriel? Well, kind of God's messenger in chief from all the angels. And listen to what he says, I've come from the very presence of God in order to give you this news. What, the, what an amazing thing that is. What a remarkable thing it is that God is doing. Here is this messenger who's come from the very side of God to speak to this man. God is about to do a remarkable thing in the world. Well, that really should be enough, shouldn't it, to know that this is who Gabriel is and this is where the message he brings is coming from. But we can be slow to acknowledge God's voice, even with an angel staring us in the face. But there's encouragement for us here as well. Because although the faith of Zacharias stutters and falters a little here, it doesn't disqualify him from God continuing to do what he purposes to do. Because God is so kind and he's gracious and he's long-suffering towards us and he, he bears with us in our weaknesses and he does that for Zacharias and Elizabeth here. He's still going to use them. He's still going to continue with his plan. But he is also going to work on Zacharias a little to bring his faith back on track. And so Zacharias is made unable to speak. And we haven't got there, but at verse 62... Perhaps it's also the case that he's been made deaf as well. But he certainly cannot speak. That's as if God is saying to Zacharias, oh, so you don't think I have the power to intervene in the spiritual realm? Well, think on this, Zacharias, for the next nine months. And no matter how... He feels the urge within him over those next months to speak and to tell people what he's just witnessed and what he's just to been told. He cannot bring the words out of his mouth because God has stopped his mouth from speaking. Quite how things were when he eventually comes out of the court of the priests to all the people we can only really Im uh, imagine as he struggles to communicate with them what's happened, struggling to get the words out of his mouth and silence gesticulating probably he's taken far longer this encounter he's had with Gabriel has meant he's been in there for much longer than would normally be in the case 
And usually, when the priest came out back to the people, he would normally conclude things by pronouncing a benediction and a blessing upon the people. And he can't. Something seriously unusual has taken place. And what about poor Elizabeth when eventually, at the end of his week of service in the temple, Zacharias returns home? You just imagine him laboriously trying to write things down to explain to her what he's just seen, what he's just been told, what it is that God has just said that he will do. And what power it is that God displays as Elizabeth does conceive and she acknowledges the Lord's kindness. No longer would that lady with a broken heart hear the other women whispering, she'd have made such a lovely mother. And her heart would break inside her. No more would she be looked down upon by some. Because for some, for her not to have provided a son and an heir for her husband, what a disgraceful thing that is. What, what's she done? What's in her background? What's the sin she's committed? What's, what's, what's that God has done this to her? And how good and kind God is to Elizabeth. All of that is lifted off her after all these years. And you see, what we notice here, isn't it, that where there has been barrenness and decay, God is able to renew and bring life. Isn't he? You recall the paralysed man lowered down through the roof to the feet of Jesus by his four friends so that you may know that the Son of Man has power and authority to, get, to forgive sins, get up off your bed, stand on your feet, pick your bed up and walk. And here is the proof and the guarantee that in the gospel of his Son, God will have and does have the power to do what he says he will do. Where there has been death and decay, God and God alone can renew and bring life. God does make those who are dead in their trespasses and sins to be made alive in Christ. And the fact that he can do it in the spiritual realm is proved because he can do it in the physical realm. God is the God of the impossible. He's the God of the miraculous. He does bring about new birth. He does give you a new heart. He does give you a new nature. He does make you alive in Christ. And the proof is found everywhere on the page of the Bible that he has the power and authority to do this. As Christ did rise from the grave, so shall we. As he lives forever in a resurrection body, so shall we. Because he does have the, this power over his creation and he can reverse deadness and decay to bring newness and life. This is the new life in Christ that you may have that's pictured here. 
repenting of your sins, placing your life and your death and your eternity into the hands of Christ as your Lord and Saviour. This long night of darkness in Israel is almost over. The very last of the Old Testament prophets, John, is soon to be born. All of John's predecessors have spoken of God's promise of redemption. They've spoken of a salvation which God himself will provide and secure for his people. Of an anointed king who will live and reign forever. And now the dawn is about to break. John would not only speak of the Messiah. With his own eyes he would see him. And with his own finger he would point to Jesus. This carpenter's son from Nazareth. Look, look. The Lamb of God. Come to take away the sins of the world. The Saviour is here. Will you receive him? Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that though this world is filled with darkness, yet there is light. That light is the Lord Jesus Christ come into the world that in and through him we may also be partakers in that light and in him receive his life. Father, we thank you for the outworking of your purposes in this world. We thank and praise you, our God, for all that we can see of your goodness towards us in the coming of the Saviour. And in this Christmas season, O oh Lord, may our hearts be fixed upon Christ that we might rejoice in all that we now have in him and of your great love that has been demonstrated to the whole world in the one who would die in our place for our sins. And so, Lord, help us, we pray, to think much of Christ and to glorify him in our lives day by day. Hear us, we ask, O oh Lord. We pray in his precious name. Amen.